0: The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian immigration department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthie, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way.
1: Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode here of the Canadian Version Podcast. I am, yes, Mark Holthi, the host, but I have my co-host here with me, Alicia Backman Bahari. How are you, Alicia?
2: I am doing really well, Mark, and we've had a little bit of a, a summer break on the podcast, but it's fantastic to get back into the swing of the podcasts for the fall and. We wanted to, after doing our LMIA business immigration series, we wanted to start tackling business immigration on the other side, on the international mobility programs. So I don't know about you, Mark, but over the last 20 years, I think probably we've had our fair share of questions from corporations about business visitors, questions from executives who thought they might've been a business visitor. And we wanted to discuss that today.
1: Absolutely, we did. And there's a reason that this comes up. It takes work, Alicia, to put together a work permit package. But if you're a business visitor, well, aside from some of the strategies we'll give you for establishing your your status as a business visitor, it's way, way simpler than having to go through the cumbersome work permit process. So in fairness, companies are looking at ways in which they can expedite the process and in many instances people have to travel on very short notice and it just takes time. So this is one of the factors I guess one of the issues that come up when uh, companies are trying to determine when they're sending people into Canada uh, whether or not they have to go through the lengthy process or whether the expedited version might just work. So why don't we start off with the very simple question which is what is a business visitor? Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing, or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.journey.ca and mention you listened to my podcast with the code Journey 10 That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast.
2: Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it should be a simple question. When people are looking at that customs form on the plane and they're trying to figure out, am I coming in for business purposes? Or am I coming in simply for, you know, travel or recreation? What do I say? And getting this right, making sure that you are legally correct is a big deal. And so here's where we'll want to look at the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations. And specifically, we're going to be looking at Regulation 186 sub A, which says a foreign national may work in Canada without a work permit as a business visitor to Canada within the meaning of section 187. And so this is really important. Somebody's coming in, they are doing work in Canada, but they do not have a work permit. And so this is a situation where there is no document to prove that you have status. You just have to be right under the law and make sure that you're meeting the definitions under regulation 187.
1: Indeed. And you know, it's interesting, Alicia, because, you know, we do a lot of cross-border work and the definition of what constitutes genuine business visitor activity heading down south is distinctly different in some cases from what is acceptable coming up to Canada. And one of the ones, excuse me, that that has always uh, drawn my attention is under section 187, one of the enumerated examples that they have there. And that is uh, 187B, Uh, where foreign nationals are receiving or giving training within a Canadian parent or subsidiary. And sometimes this can, you know, cause companies to be a little bit more, I guess, footloose and fancy free with sending individuals into Canada um, under the, you know, this provision. When in reality, the work that they're doing is having an impact on the actual business. And I I can remember, um, yeah, an example where someone was coming up to, well, allegedly, give some training to the Canadian uh, employees, but in reality, they were supervising the project. So it's a, it's maybe not as fine of a line as you would expect, but it still is. Um, yeah, you have to be careful not to push the envelope.
2: Yeah, and Mark, Mark, you were referring to 187 sub 2 sub B, but it's really important to. To ground this, right? So 187 has two, three subsections. So it's got sub one, sub two, and sub three. And sub one says, well, look at you're only a business visitor under 186 sub A, if you're engaging in international business activities without directly entering the Canadian labor market. And so you're right, Mark, even though sub two says here are specific cases where people can be considered business visitors, if you're not meeting the requirements of sub one, that you, you know, if you wade into, by accident, engaging in domestic, inside Canada labor market, then you're offside right away. So keep in mind when you're looking at business visitors, no international business activities. And immigration gives a little bit of interpretation about what that means, right? So engaging in international business activities is gonna be, well, you're not allowed to engage with the general public in Canada. That's entering the domestic Canadian labor market and well, you can purchase Canadian goods or services for a foreign company or receive training or familiarization, but any sort of production is going to have to be incidental. Right. So if you are doing the training like you were talking about, um, if you're creating a whole bunch of widgets. Those widgets have to be incidental to the training. It can't be that you're, you know, you're actually doing the work and you come up and you say you're giving training and all of a sudden you have a, a production line is is in operation and you've created your product. Um, so this is important. You can't directly sell to the general public in Canada.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so if we're looking at business visitors, Alicia, you know, where do companies most often run into problems? when they're trying to send people in.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that you can also use to prove that the person that you're sending into Canada is not entering the Canadian labor market is that that employee needs to be continued to be paid in the foreign company's same manner, same wages, into the foreign account um, by the foreign company. And the principal place of business and the accrual of profits has to be predominantly outside of Canada. So when a company is looking at bringing somebody in, there can't be any sort of transfer. They can't be getting paid in Canadian dollars. And all of the product has to, and the profits have to remain in the foreign company. So that's important in terms of how the company writes a letter of support, if they are writing a letter of support, what the employee is going to be saying when they're asked what they're doing in Canada by a port of entry officer from CBSA or IRCC. So those are things that everybody needs to understand carefully before they get to that border officer.
1: You know, it's interesting, Alicia, I remember when I started my practice, whatever, almost 20 years ago, there was a firm that was basically going around saying, um well this is how they provided advice for the business visitors you know if you can keep your hands in your pocket then you're probably more likely to be a business visitor right which in all actuality in our massively knowledge based uh, economy globally um a lot of work can be done with your hands in your pocket and so we can't really use that as a, a, a determining factor anymore Well, I don't even know if it could have been used in the beginning, but that's kind of how they tried to help their global mobility specialists understand, you know, what was business visitor work and what wasn't. Now, things have tightened up considerably since those days. But when you look at, you know, how this all plays out, um, one of the classic things we see from companies is sending people up for meetings. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so what's your take on meetings, Alicia?
2: Yeah, so... I mean, everybody says they're coming in for meetings, but what they're really doing is what we care about. And so when a company or when an executive or an employee reaches out and says, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing, is it okay? Or do I actually need a work permit? We're gonna ask them a few questions. We're gonna say, well, what exactly are you doing in Canada? Who are you meeting with? Where are you going? How long will you be here? What's the scope of the types of meetings that you're going to be engaging with, because for sure, yes, you can't do hands-on work. But we need to understand all those other moving parts, too, because let's face it, there's a logic test to this, right? If you have somebody who's coming in for air quotes meetings seven times in two months and they're staying here for almost half a week every time, this becomes a little bit tricky by the time you get to the border the sixth time.
1: And especially given the fact they can track everyone so well now, there's no mystery as to how often or how frequent an individual has come to Canada. And I also want to point out that duration isn't necessarily a conclusive determiner when it comes to business visitor entry. An individual could be coming in for a day and it could still constitute work versus an individual who maybe is here for a week or two, but they truly are still business visitors. So I just wanted to point that out.
2: Mm -hmm. And the other thing, the other way that people run into trouble is not being properly prepared, or if they're bringing in a bunch of tools of work, right? If you come in carrying this giant suitcase of tools of work, this is um, most likely going to be a red flag for that port of entry officer. So be careful about what you're bringing in, right? Are you bringing in corporate laptops and all sorts of paraphernalia? Are you bringing in tools? Are you bringing in a giant bag full of stuff that um, a tradesperson would normally use? Keep in mind that um, you're gonna have to explain why you're here so normally we do recommend that a corporation prepare for a business visit well in advance and they are going to probably write a corporate letter of support or a corporate letter of invitation so that the employee isn't kind of left hanging on their own if the officer asks them they can provide a letter from the company saying yes so and so is coming in for business meetings that we expect to be this duration you know, they're expected back at work in the US or whichever country they're coming from on such and such day. Here's our phone number if you need further information.
1: Exactly. Now, in addition to our 186 and 187, there are other free trade agreements that Canada has with other countries that breathe a little bit more life into this concept of business visitors. And when you look at the agreements we've had with Chile, Peru, Colombia, South Korea, Um, They also have, you know, in some cases, different sets of rules where individuals may be able to come in to provide something that normally might be considered work, but are exempt from the need for a work permit. Do you want to touch on that?
2: yeah and this is often specifically in respect to the three subcategories that immigration talks about on their website right they give some specific examples and they give some program policy guidance interpretation on three things that come up often which would be after sales service or warranty work supervisors and then the training in installation which we touched upon so these are three common examples that often come up in the business visitor category they're still under you know the business visitors 187 but there's a little bit more program policy guidance on it but yes we do have to be careful if you're an immigration lawyer and you're advising a company or their employee about You know can you fit under the supervisor business visitor exemption well make sure that if you're looking at a country under one of those free trade agreements you go and check how that free trade agreement might modify the provisions that you know are generally applicable so after sales service warranty work um, be careful about this one so there has to be the after sales service service agreement or the warranty agreement and the service contract has to relate to specialized commercial or industrial equipment that was purchased or leased outside of canada and whoever's coming in has to be repairing servicing setting up testing or supervising the work and make sure those service contracts are negotiated as part of either the original sales or lease agreement or the rental agreement or it's got to be an extension of the original agreement.
1: And that's a great point, Alicia. It's probably one of the most important takeaways we want you to, to have from after sales service. That, you know, that, that after sales service must have been contemplated in the original agreement or, or, you know, any necessary extensions of that. And often, far too often, we see that uh, companies have acquired some equipment or something from abroad and then there's issues with installation or, or, or servicing of this equipment. But the original contract didn't mention anything about that. It was just maybe something that was expected or it was commonplace in the industry. So why do we need to put that into the agreement? Of course, they're going to honor the product that they've sold or they're going to help to install the equipment that they've sold us. But it absolutely must be in there. And that's one of those little things that border officers who... You know, let's face it, some are more sophisticated than others, but they've been taught to look for that particular provision in the agreement. And it's a very easy, easy way for them to say, nope, you're not coming in, you need a work permit. And often that work permit is an LMIA-based work permit. Uh, It's the only one that's possible in many instances in this type of a situation. And if you have to flip back to that and you've got equipment that is broken, you know, or, or it needs servicing, or there's something that's halted all of your production, And you're waiting on an LMIA to get an individual in to come in and uh, and service or or do warranty work. My goodness, it's unbelievably disruptive.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think part of our job as immigration lawyers is having kind of that long range vision to say, What are the things that you need to make sure are set up properly in your business immigration contracts and in the way that you've been doing operations so that you don't run into these problems later on down the road? And making sure that companies are aware of this, that if they do need to turn around and apply for that LMIA they've done so well in advance, keep in mind LMIA processing time right now. You know, we've got 63 days, business days plus the time that it takes for the work permit if you're if you're not a US citizen or you're not visa exempt. So be careful about that. Um, next is supervisors, right? We we always get people saying, oh yeah, I'm coming in to uh, supervise the installation of specialized machinery. Um, Remember, no hands-on work. So yes, it does have to be supervising, specialized machinery purchased or leased outside of Canada, or you could be dismantling equipment or machinery purchased in Canada for relocation outside Canada, but no hands-on work.
1: You know, um, one of the interesting aspects about this supervisor situation is um, wherever possible, and companies don't always think about this, if, if there's an element of an intercompany transfer, and you have uncertainty regarding whether or not someone is a business visitor. You know, sometimes it just makes sense if you anticipate an individual is going to be coming up more frequently, and there is that qualifying corporate relationship, which we will talk about in later podcasts with these intercompany transfers. Sometimes it's just better to get that work permit and uh, and avoid all of the hassle or the uncertainty or the risk of having someone show up show up at a port of entry and a border officer not agree that they are a business visitor. And, uh you know we get it that it takes a little bit more time effort and there's a cost associated with it but and this goes a little bit outside of our business visitor topic today but there is the the ability to recapture time on intercompany transfer work permits and so if an individual is only coming up for a certain period of time um you know just because the work permit is issued doesn't mean that they're burning up all of their time on that intercompany transfer so keep that in mind as well
2: mm-hmm and yeah, for sure. And Mark, you've got a good segue, but we'll, we'll just finish the training and installation and then we'll jump to what happens if the POE disagrees with your interpretation and thinks you don't qualify as a business visitor. But on the training and installation side, just make sure that if you are bringing somebody for training and installation, it's you've got to be training the Canadian purchasers or leasers, maintenance staff on that specialized equipment and make sure that equipment was purchased or leased from outside of Canada. And if the equipment has already been installed, then you'd want to talk about that too. So same thing, the individual has to remain on the home country payroll and benefits, can't be paid any compensation other than expenses by the Canadian branch. So, you know, when you're doing that letter of support, make sure that you're documenting each aspect to prove that it does fit within that training and installation stricture.
1: Makes sense. All right. So not all... Companies, not all, I guess I shouldn't say companies, not all business visitors are treated equally by Canada. It makes a difference, their citizenship, where they're coming from. So Alicia, how do these, practically speaking, if a company needs to send someone into Canada, you know, what's, what are the things that they need to think
2: about? Mm -hmm. And practically the mechanics of this are really important. So one of the first questions I always ask my corporate business clients is, well, What is the nationality of your, of your worker? What is their passport? And sometimes it's multiple, right? Sometimes people will have dual nationality. So we wanna know right away, are they a US citizen or a green card holder? Because if they are, then our life is gonna be much easier when we're looking at business visitors. If they're not a US citizen or a green card holder, are they from a visa exempt country? Can they travel to Canada with simply an electronic travel authorization? Where it gets more complicated for business visitors for sure is if they are from a visa required country, if they are TRV required, then this is not just going to be, you put somebody on a plane and they show up at the border because all manner of things are going to go sideways for them and probably for the company too.
1: Indeed. And let's face it, when you're starting to make these plans for having people travel, if you have a US citizen that you're sending up, you can do it pretty quick right? There's not a lot that really is required um, in terms of uh, advanced preparation other than arming them with the documentation they need at the port of entry. But on the flip side, if you're bringing someone in, let's say that's a Chinese national, for instance, it is a formal application process and the processing times are all over the map lately. And there's no guarantee that, you know, if you're trying to get someone through, you know, on a very, very short period of time that they're going to be able to Um, to get that visa to be able to travel when you need them to. So you have to be very strategic and you absolutely have to plan in advance wherever possible.
2: Mm -hmm. And some of the things that um, will still apply could be, you know, if they have a visa requirement, then there might be medical requirements as well, depending on which country of nationality they have and where they may have lived within the last year for six months continuously. And there might be biometrics requirements. So you might be looking at a fairly lengthy involved process when you thought you were just sending somebody up for a meeting depending on their country of nationality and the interesting thing is you know often when i speak with americans they don't even really realize they're here as a business visitor they just check the form that said they were coming for a meeting and they figure that's that because for americans who are american citizens or green card holders there's no extra document they just travel on their valid passport they don't have to usually They don't normally get any sort of documentation showing their business visitor status. So sometimes people don't even realize that they were there as a business visitor. Um, For anybody who is here on an ETA, it's a much easier process as well. But absolutely, if it's a visa required country, then make sure that you've done your homework in advance.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the things that we spend a lot of time working with our companies, especially when it comes to TRV required applicants because it is a formal application through IRCC's uh, uh, um, secure kind of account. And this portal, in and of itself, requires that the worker register for an account, and there are forms, there are documents that have to be uploaded, and they have to establish, even though in the other factors, if you're a U.S. citizen and an ETA, Electronic Travel Authorization Holder, to some extent Canada's expectation of you demonstrating your ability to return to your home country, your willingness to do that. It's it's maybe softened, but it's still there. But when it comes to temporary resident visa applications, you have to take that seriously. You can't just say, "Well, they're employed by my company, we're a big multinational, of course they're coming back." You know, you can't just assume and then and then be light on the supporting documents. You have to make sure that you're you're documenting, you know, their ties to the home country. Those basic requirements that are associated with any temporary visa application to Canada. So, you know, and the worst thing in the world is to is to wait two, three weeks for a decision and then get a refusal and then scramble to try to fix the holes in the application that should have been um, addressed right at the front. So it's always best to give your best kick at the can right at the beginning.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of companies don't realize, hey, well, I'm sending my VP up. And well, you know, the VP has got to show that they have temporary intent, that they have ties to their home country. So, you know, maybe show that their spouse is staying in their home country, maybe show that they own property in their home country. And so that's a little bit more invasive. You've got to get that supporting documentation from your employee up front to at least show that there's some sort of valid temporary intent in addition to the letter saying, yes, this person's coming back to work for us on such and such week.
1: And many, uh, you know, global mobility specialists are probably listening to this and saying, come on, seriously? And I guess my answer to all of you now is artificial intelligence is being employed more and more frequently across the whole immigration network. And recently, immigration, well, for the first time, said, hey, we're now going to start expanding this into the world of work permits and things like that. And understand, it may not be a live human being that's initially triaging this application. And so, if the you know the advanced analytics they use for sorting and categorizing applications uh, scans through what you've submitted, they don't know the difference between you know General Electric and mom and pop's pizza shop. All they see is that this individual hasn't included anything, you know, to support their ties to their home country, which then gets it triaged into you know the 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 officers uh, <laughs> who who are looking to refuse, and uh, and so just. You can't take any chances anymore. You just can't.
2: Yeah, just satisfy those requirements up front.
1: All right. So, as far as putting packages together and, and arming individuals with documents, we talk a lot about support letters from the company, and uh, you know the reality is um, this is a is a pillar to any business visitor application. Whether you're coming in as a U.S. citizen, you know on on you know the ETA based um, entry or a TRV letters of support from the company that explain what the person's doing, confirm all of those elements that Alicia has talked about in terms of the activities, all of these um, things are always built into those letters. But are there some key, key things that you can, you can kind of point out Alicia?
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that sometimes happens is somebody comes up as a business visitor and they thought they might be staying for a few weeks and then that becomes longer and it becomes longer and it becomes longer so keep in mind that if you do come as a business visitor that six-month rule still applies right anybody who's coming without a duration without a document the maximum time they can stay as a business visitor is six months and that would be a stretch i think on a business visitor unless you clearly are getting paid by the company outside of canada and not doing a thing inside of canada um, to deal with Canadian customers or, or direct work. But um, keep in mind that you do have that six month requirement. And it's important to note that sometimes I get a question from people saying, hey, I like it in Canada. I wanna stay longer. Or the company says, you know, they came as a business visitor, they've got status here, quote unquote status. Um, can we just apply for a work permit from inside Canada for them? Have you heard that, Mark?
1: Um, once or twice, Alicia, I think. <laughs>
2: So the general rule still applies and COVID has made things much more murky but the general rule is that you cannot come in on visitor status so people who are on business visitor status are visitors right visitor is in the name so they are able to work but only as an exemption exception from the normal rule that you must normally apply for a work permit from outside Canada so it's generally not allowed to go from visitor status to work permit status from inside Canada. There were some temporary public policies that allowed this. There is currently a temporary public policy in place until February of 2025 that will allow people, if the company is able to get an LMIA and then the worker is able to submit that work permit and then you can ask for interim authorization to work, but this is all an exception to the rule. So just be very careful that if you are looking if your ultimate goal is to transition people to a work permit, don't bring them in as a visitor because you also risk the officer saying, hey, you misrepresented your intent when you originally came in as a business visitor.
1: Yes, and we see this a lot with individuals whose representatives overseas or in Canada advise them to come as visitors to Canada and then do a loop around the pole, flagpole to get their work permits. And the border service officers, you know, it's, it's been quite a while since I was last working on the border as an officer, but they do not like this at all. They feel like this is kind of an end run around the proper processes and they don't have time to process work permits. So they will literally look for ways to avoid having to do it. And one of the ways that they do that is questioning the original intent of that entry on that visitor visa. They say, well, you already have an LMIA. You just got here. telling me that your intention was just as a visitor you must have misrepresented your entry and therefore we are going to give you this nice little form this ATL allowed to leave and we're going to defer your examination go pack up your stuff head to the airport and hit the road and we've seen this happen with our corporate clients as much as we've seen it with individuals so you have to be very very strategic in what you're doing and uh, don't just look for whatever appears to be the fastest way to get the work permit, because you may not like. You might get a quick adjudication, but you may not like the <laughs> the answer you get when the work permit is being adjudicated.
2: Mm-hmm. And that leads us to what happens when the mm-hmm. Poe disagrees. When they say, "Uh-uh, I don't think you're a business visitor," and mark maybe that's a nice officer that gives you the atl and allows you to leave and doesn't slap you m- with misrepresentation because it could be worse right you could actually have a situation where your corporate employee you know starts speaking off to the officer, or the officer decides to look at their phone and starts looking at what they were doing in Canada and where they were going, because they can look at locations and track that. And they say, well, wait a minute, not only, you know, you told us you're a business visitor, and you've been traveling to all these client sites, we're going to slap you with misrepresentation. And now you've got a five, well, the employee has a five-year bar, and they're not able to come into Canada at all. And that might seriously disrupt your business. And it's going to reflect extremely negatively on the employer if that were to happen.
1: Yeah. And another strategy they like to use is to deem that the person has worked without authorization. And if they determine or make that that finding that the person has worked without authorization, you cannot apply for a work permit until six months have passed from when the last unauthorized work occurred. And so when you have an individual the officer looks at the phone. He says, "Look, I think this is work. You're communicating with you know clients, and you know, and this is clearly not business visitor activity. You're entering the labor market. This is unauthorized work. So, sure, they may indicate you have to leave, but they may also say you can't come back and apply for another work permit for six months, which can be also equally disruptive. Um, and let's face it, officers will use the path of least resistance. They they like issuing." Um, allowed to leave because they don't have to really put too much work into documenting. Essentially they're saying you have decided you're going to withdraw your desire to enter. And then they make a little note in GCMS and it will be on that, that individual worker's record and understand you as a company, all of the, you know, all of the individuals that you're sending into Canada, they can, they can work their way back up through each individual back to their company and they can map it all out. Now there was a time early in our practices, Alicia, when, they didn't really have a meaningful way of tracking companies, you know, businesses. But with uh, with GCMS, when they rolled away from the old FOSS system to GCMS, uh, they now have the ability to, to really put a, a clear finger on how many workers are coming in and what they're doing. And if you have a history of one, you know, or two or, or three workers who have maybe tried to fudge things and... Uh, seek entry as a business visitor when they're not or have tried to, you know, have been found to have worked without authorization, it can create a huge black mark on you as a company. And there's nothing worse than coming to apply for a work permit. And as soon as they, you know, look up the company, they see there's a history of non-compliance. Instantly, <clears throat> your workers are going to have to work a whole lot harder to get that, you know, to get that yeah. requesting.
2: And you make a really good point, Mark, because it's not just the employee who's at risk here. It is for sure the employer, because if that port of entry officer were to say, hey, we think there's unauthorized work for the employee, that also means there's unauthorized work for the company who could have been employing them. And it all depends if they're employing them in Canada, if they're entering the Canadian labor market. But if they are entering the Canadian labor market, If that's the determination, then that means that the company is also liable. And they've really put teeth around these provisions, right? There's the general provision, in the act that a company is not allowed to employ somebody to work in Canada without authorization. But there's a deeming provision to that, that companies are deemed to know better and deemed to know that people can't work unless they have proper authorization under a work permit. And so if the company has breached this, there are actual criminal fines. There is jail time. There are sanctions. There are financial penalties, plus the reputational risk that that company is going to face as well.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things people like the most is, is stories and uh, examples. And so I'm going to share a little, a little story here at the end as we wrap up that, you know, directly relates to applying for documents at the port of entry. And um, although we are attempting to scare you away from sending workers down and, and doing that, by law, they have the right to do so. But it's your job to make sure there are no skeletons in the closet, that there's nothing that an officer can rely upon to suggest that the person worked without authorization or that they, you know, were not truly a business visitor when they were in Canada. And I remember I had some clients they were referred from a lawyer, I think up in Edmonton, and they wanted to, um, they, they had been in Canada for quite a while, I think four months as a visitor, right? And the moment you've been in Canada for that length of time as a visitor instantly the officers are going to start thinking, hmm, how has this person supported themselves? What Canadian in their right mind would be able to take four months on kind of vacation and just hang out and support themselves? And so that happens sometimes with these individuals. And, you know, and so when you're sending individuals down to the border, um, you, you run the risk of, of an officer finding something that can, can cause problems. So I worked on you know one of the ports of entry in southern Alberta And uh, so this lawyer said, hey, can we send these individuals down? And they told me the situation. I said, okay, well, I'm going to talk to them first. So I put my my officer hat on, my border officer hat on, and I grilled them. I used every trick in the trade that I was taught on the border to try to catch people and admit that they'd worked without authorization. And after thoroughly grilling them, I was pretty satisfied that it was legitimate. You know, they were They were Filipino. They had family and community that had, you know, basically supported them while they were here waiting for their work permit, their LMIA. And I was pretty confident and they had lots of funds in their, in their accounts to support themselves. And so I called the board, the port of entry where I worked, spoke to one of the officers that had actually trained me. And I explained the situation and said, Hey, do you mind if they come down and apply for their work permit? And he said, well, sure they can come down, but come on, Mark, you know, they've worked without authorization no one can be in Canada that long without having done something, and so, you know, obviously the decision in his mind was already made. And I said, okay, well, I'm sending them down. And if you think you can find something because I've grilled them, then you go for it. And uh, and so I'll be I'll be waiting to hear. And uh, and so we send them down, and they got their work permits. But I can tell you that those workers were, you know, those four nationals applying for that work permit we more prepared than I don't think anyone had ever been prepared applying for a work permit. So if you do your due diligence, you make sure that there's no skeletons in the closet. There's no surprises. You can absolutely go down and you can apply for documents at the ports of entry. But I guess one other thing I'll just point out, and I know this drifts a little bit further away from our, our main topic here, but um, not all ports of entry have open office hours at all times of the the day. So you have to pay attention. Some In some regions, they have certain times when they will deal with flagpoles, and uh, and sometimes they will turn workers away, so you need to pay attention and talk to your, you know, your immigration council as to the, the best place and location if you are actually going to do that, and not all ports of entry are created equal, and so some are, are less facilitative than others, so be aware of that.
2: Mm-hmm. And. One important point, I mean, flag pulling is, is not exactly business visitors, but if, if you are in a situation where the business visitor needs to turn into applying for a work permit and that was all done properly and you can deal with your temporary intent and the fact that you weren't misrepresenting when you first came as a business visitor, that's good. But keep in mind, too, like in your example, Mark, if you're dealing with Filipino citizens, they need to make sure that they have a valid U.S. visitor visa before they attempt to co- dry, try to do a flag pull, right? Because what i have seen in consults sometimes is people go down they think they can do the flagpole the u.s says no way you're not coming into the u.s you don't have a valid u.s visitor visa so they actually deny them entry so this is the best case scenario instead of actually um, doing something worse they say well you can't even come into the US, we're gonna send you back to the Canadian side, but they haven't technically left Canada, right? Because they weren't admitted to the US. And sometimes what happens is the people don't even realize they now have a refusal to enter the US or the US has recorded them as not having been admitted. And let's say they do go back to Canada and let's say that officer does give them their work permit. When they go to apply for another work permit or for express entry, I've seen cases where IRCC comes back and says, hey, you didn't disclose that you were refused entry to the U.S. on such and such a day because they really forgot that on that flagpole, even though they might have gotten their Canadian work permit, uh uh-oh, they were actually technically denied to the U.S. So be really careful in those situations.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Alicia. I think we uh, covered and canvassed the the high points of this world of business visitors, and hopefully this was informative and beneficial for you. At the end of the day, the the best thing you can do is make sure that you are are well, um, you know, prepared and and that you have things uh, assessed and that when you're sending someone up, you know clearly whether or not they're a business visitor or someone who needs a work permit. And uh, although business needs and and, uh, urgency and timelines don't always coincide and mesh well with immigration regulations and requirements, you never want to put yourself in a position or your worker where they could face a refusal because, like Alicia had indicated before, it's something that you just don't shake. It's always there. It's always a part of the record. And if a person is flagged and the border can put flags on individuals, um, it could affect every entry you know, going forward until significant steps are taken to actually remove the flags. So be aware of that. All right. Thanks so much, Alicia. We'll be back again in our, uh, in future podcasts as we continue forward with the international mobility program, talking about all of those various work permit programs and, and work permit categories that do not require labor market impact assessments. Um, but we appreciate you. And if you have any ideas for, future podcasts and topics you'd like us to cover, just send us an email. You can send it to mark at com, and uh, we welcome any feedback that you have. All right. Thanks so much, Alicia.
2: Thanks, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. YOUR TRUSTED SOURCE FOR INFORMATION ON CANADIAN IMMIGRATION LAW POLICY AND PRACTICE. IF YOU WOULD LIKE TO BOOK A LEGAL CONSULTATION, PLEASE VISIT www.holtylaw.com. YOU CAN ALSO FIND LOTS MORE HELPFUL INFORMATION ON OUR CANADIAN IMMIGRATION INSTITUTE YOUTUBE CHANNEL, WHERE YOU CAN JOIN MARK ON ONE OF HIS MANY CANADIAN IMMIGRATION LIVE Q&A'S. SEE YOU SOON. AND ALL THE BEST AS YOU NAVIGATE THIS CRAZY WORLD WE CALL CANADIAN IMMIGRATION.